We'll be looking at Matthew in chapter 24. And forgive me, we'll be reading verses 29 through 35. It is a fitting passage for us to consider on this Palm Sunday. For in the context of Matthew's telling of the story, Jesus has actually already arrived on that Palm Sunday. The crowds have received him and welcomed him as the long and promised king. And now, after having cleansed the temple and having taken on the scribes and Pharisees, he is speaking about that great day when the king will arrive visibly and in glory, his kingdom will have come near and been established. I want to remind you of Matthew's good news. His good news is that the promised king has in fact come, and that means that everything is changing. Jesus is that promised king. And as such, he has invited us to participate in the blessing of that great and cosmic revolution by teaching us to pray, Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now, as we said in Matthew's telling, Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem has been gathered and they have welcomed the coming king. They have sung out loud hosannas, giving praise to something that they did not quite understand. Even as we gather on this Palm Sunday, for reasons that we do understand and for reasons that we do not understand. When the king comes near, when he takes his rightful place of rule in our world, when his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, what will it be like? What will it look like? When he comes to establish his peace in a world at war, what will it feel like? What will it look like when he begins to remove all the powers that be in the spirit of the age and to establish his own rightful rule? What should we be looking for? What should we expect? This is what the disciples have asked Jesus. They asked the question, when will these things be? And Jesus is asking, answering something a little bit different. He is answering, what will you see? So read with me, if you will, Matthew chapter 24, beginning with verse 29, reading to verse 35. Immediately after that, the, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the heavens and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. 
And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of the heaven to the other. So from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's go to him in prayer. So, Father, we come to this time and this service, to this, your word, written in a language that we use every day. And so it is so easy for us to dismiss it. Because, Father, being far too familiar with it. Like Paul prayed, how desperately we need your spirit to grant us wisdom and courage to listen well, to see well. So, Father, we pray that you would do it, that we would hear you speak to us through this, your word. Protect us from error. Feast us upon your truth, we pray in Jesus. Amen. If you knew that tonight was going to be the last night of the world as you knew it, what would you do? If you knew that tonight would be the last night of the world as you knew it, what would you do? Martin Luther was asked that question. His answer was, I would plant a tree. Not exactly what we might expect. In fact, nowadays, most people would say, well, I would... I would run to my bunker that I have now stocked with rations for 90 days and ammunition to boot. Martin Luther said he would plant a tree. Bruce Coburn, Canadian singer-songwriter, says he would drink a bottle of champagne. Jeremiah we are told, bought land in Jerusalem. These seem utterly foolish. It's almost as though they didn't hear the question or they didn't understand the question. No, no, Martin. No, no, Bruce. No, no, Jeremiah. This is the last night of the world as we know it. Did you not understand the question? Do you not see, especially in the case of Jeremiah, what is happening all around you? This is the last night of the world as we know it. Disciples had asked Jesus, when? When will be the last night of the world as we know it? 
And Jesus said, that's not the right question. The right question is, what will be the signs of the last world, last night of the world as we know it? In our passage, he draws, as he summarizes this part of his answer to their question, he has them look at the fig tree. It's not the first time we've encountered a fig tree this week. You'll remember that Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He went, he went to the temple and that's where he overturned the, the tables of the money changers and he purged the temple. It's not exactly the politically correct thing to do if you want to win the support of the voters. And right after that, There's the fig tree that he saw, and you will remember that he went to it expecting to find fruit because it looked like it was a healthy fig tree, and yet there was no fruit on it, and he cursed it. You see, the fig tree is to give a sign and give an indication of things that are, and when it doesn't live up to its design, it communicates rather, death. And so he says once again, look here at the fig tree. When it functions according to design, you know that when its branches become tender and it puts out its first leaves, you know that summer is near. The new leaf equals summer is coming. We know what he's talking about. We've experienced it ourselves. Some of us with a little bit of fear and trepidation. We see the first buds on the fruit trees, for example. And we think, oh my word, I hope it doesn't come too soon. I hope that a late spring frost doesn't kill it. Because we know that summer is coming. We see the daffodils and we know that summer is coming. How is it that we can draw that conclusion? Because really, think about this for just a moment. There is no essential connection between the new leaf and summer. Think about this. Just because it has always been that way doesn't mean that it must be that way unless... There's a reliability to the design. There's a predictability to the way the world was created, to the way the world operates. It's the predictability we call the steadfast love of the Lord that was referenced just a little bit ago. And so Jesus is saying, look, he's done this before. He says, look at the birds of the field, the the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. He says, look at the world around you and behold the reality of God's faithfulness. The predictability of God's faithfulness, the same yesterday, today and forever. It's because of that that we can see signs in creation and know what is coming. And so he says, so also, verse 33, when you see these things, you know 
that he is near. Because the God of nature is the God of history. He's the same God exercising the same steadfast faithfulness. The fig tree manifests spiritual realities. What are these things? What are these things that we ought to see that indicate the approaching king and his kingdom? As those who have been raised on Psalm 147, think about that, look at that. Excuse me, 145. It was the meditation read this morning. Just turn in your bulletin and look at it. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love, steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. Mercy is over all. All your works give thanks. O Lord, all your saints bless you. They speak of the glory and they tell of your power. Glorious splendor. When we hear that language, we, th- we have in our minds particular things. We think of beautiful things and wonderful things and lovely things and comforting things. That was the description of the kingdom, the king and the kingdom in Psalm 145. But what are the, these things that Jesus has in mind when he mentions them here at verse, in verse 33? Well, he's referring to all that he's just described. Beginning with verse 5. Many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ. They will say, see, see that you are not alarmed. You will hear wars and rumors of wars. King, nations will rise against nation and kingdoms against kingdoms. There will be famines and earthquakes But those are just the birth pangs. Then there will be the abomination of desolation. And on and on and on it goes. That's the these things. When you see these things. You know. That the king of glory. Is coming near. These things. Just like the fig tree. Show us. That the king of glory is coming near, and the kingdom is coming near. When you read about it in Psalm 145, it doesn't sound very apocalyptic, but when you read about it in Matthew 24, it sounds apocalyptic. And it's terrifying. The end of the world as we know it, the end of our life as we know it. Everything changes. The sun is darkened. The moon doesn't give its light. Stars fall from the tree. That would be hard. Stars fall from the heavens. And the powers of heaven themselves are shaken. It's a terrifying time. When we see these things, then we know that the king, the promised king, and the promised kingdom is drawing near. You can count on it. That's the foundation of Paul's benediction to the Thessalonians. Be strong, be courageous, he says, for the one who called you is faithful 
He will do it. You can go to the bank. This is the basis of Paul's confidence in Philippians when he says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to perfect completion. This is the basis of Paul's encouragement to Timothy that even if we are unfaithful, yet he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. This is the hope that we have in temptation, as Scott reminded us just a few minutes ago. This is the hope and joy that we have in all circumstances, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. In fact, the foundation of it is found here in verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. It is certain and it is lasting, more lasting than the very, th- the very things that you think are most lasting. What are the signs of that coming glory? The signs of that coming glory, as we have just said, is wars and rumors of wars, the abomination of desolation, the sun darkening. What is going on there? Remember that this follows right after the woes to the scribes and Pharisees. It comes right after the the great cry of lamentation of Jesus over Jerusalem. Because what he's talking about there is the embodiment and the exercise of the spirit of this age. That his coming will uproot and replace. And so as we get into chapter 24 and we read about all these things, what we're reading about is what does it look like when the coming king uproots all that which resists his reign? What does it look like when the coming king uproots and and does away with all that opposes his reign? All that pollutes his reign wherever it may be found. All of it is being challenged and exposed and dismantled and removed and purged and replaced from wherever it may be found. You remember Psalm 2 describes the raging and the ridicule of the nations. It's all of that raging and all of that ridicule, wherever it is found, That the king comes to uproot, dismantle, and replace. This is what the grace and the mercy and the patience and the abounding steadfast love of the Lord and the accomplishment of his promised purposes looks like. Whether we find the raging of the spirit of the age or the ridicule of the spirit of the age within our own hearts, within our own lives, within our own families, or more broadly in our communities, our nation, our world, the king comes to challenge it, to expose it, to uproot it, to replace it. This is the good work which he has begun in which we have confidence he will bring to perfect completion. When we see these things, whether in our lives or in the life of the world around us, we know that the king is coming. 
Many of you have read, and um, I have confessed to having not read, but now I have read, Narnia. And you will remember there's that scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the kids are there. And remember how it's described in Narnia, it was always winter but never Christmas. It was a land frozen. And as the kids are walking through the land of Narnia, this great frozen land, there's this drop of water that falls. They stop and they look. The kids don't understand it. But Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tell them, Ah, Aslan is near. Aslan is coming. Aslan is on the move because the snow is starting to melt and spring is coming. And just so when the power structures of our world and of our lives in that world begin to melt and begin to diminish and begin to fall apart, begin to disappear, if we are looking and seeing with eyes of faith, we should recognize that the King of glory is near, that the King of glory is coming. That, the power, that he is dismantling the power structures of my heart, the power structures of my life, the power structures of the world around me. And he is setting, he is setting about to replace them with his kingdom, with his will in my world, in my life, in my heart as it is in heaven. As that great prophet of Flintstone, Bobby Vine said to me just this week, God ain't going to lead you wrong. He might aggravate you sometimes, but he ain't going to lead you wrong. And just so, isn't it? We feel him dismantling our lives, and that really aggravates us. We feel him dismantling the power structures of our heart, and that is aggravating. But he ain't leading us wrong. He's establishing the reign of his glory. Several years ago, we had a bunch of people at the house, some of you all, And I was on one side of the room and I was talking with someone and I observed um, one of you talking with a friend, one of you fathers talking with a friend, tiny little son, dad, 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 dad. I'm not allowed to say from the pulpit how I would have responded in that episode, but as I watched from across the room, the dad looked at his conversation partner in the eye and he said, excuse me just a moment. And he knelt down, he looked his son in the eye, and he very quietly explained, that's not how we act. Daddy's talking with someone right now. I love you and I will talk with you soon. And he stood back up and he returned to the conversation. Now in that moment, there was this double revelation and conviction in my own heart. Because I thought to myself, huh, that's not how I do the daddy thing. 
huh, I guess that's how you do the daddy thing. And so I learned in a moment. It was very uncomfortable as the Lord dismantled the value systems of my heart and as he sowed the seed of his grace in my own life. I learned how to do the daddy thing. I don't know if that man knows that he did that or not. He would probably be shocked if he knew. But that's how it works when the kingdom of God comes near to us in our lives. Sadly, though, that is not how we always respond. Sadly, we respond more instinctively with rage and ridicule. Well, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. And so it is we see that when the Son of Man appears, then all the tribes of the earth mourn. Why? There's something going on there in verse 30. Then will appear the sign in heaven of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and then they will see the Son of Man. There's three things that are happening almost simultaneously. The appearance of the Son of Man, the mourning of the nations, because they recognize, they see, they perceive, they understand that this is the one. Why are they mourning? Because the instinct of the nations has been to rage against his reign and to ridicule his reign. And then he appears and they immediately know that they are the fools and not him. And they immediately know that because they have been the fools and raging and ridiculing against his reign, that spells their doom. And so they mourn. The language here of mourning is the language of lamentation that we've been hearing over the last couple weeks. It's the language of beating one's breast. It's the language of wailing and writhing agony of grief and loss. In this case, the loss of self. His is the name that I've raged against, that I've ridiculed this whole time. And this whole time, I've been the fool. Woe is me, says Isaiah, I am undone. It's the same feeling. It's the anguish of Jesus' own lament over Jerusalem on Jerusalem's behalf. Jerusalem, do you not get who it is that you are raging against and ridiculing even this week as we go through the week of Jesus' passion? But you see, there are some who will see his appearing and recognize who he is for whom that mourning will immediately turn to dancing. Look, he will send out his angels and with a loud trumpet and he will gather his elect from the four winds from among all the nations that are there writhing in mourning will be those who have who bear the mark of his love, who bear the mark of citizenship in his kingdom. For them, his appearance is not of lasting mourning, but of mourning that is turned to dancing, because they are the object of his coming and coming love. They are the ones that he has loved, and so have they have loved him. They are the ones that are his people who know themselves to be, know him to be their God. You see, when he comes 
in the conquering glory of his great love as the hymn goes. What a day of rejoicing that will be. For those who have been eagerly watching and eagerly waiting and eagerly working for his arrival, those who have been seeing the signs and understanding them and understanding that the king is coming, Aslan is on the move, the kingdom is near. When we will cry out, hallelujah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, these things and the appearance of the coming king happen throughout every generation. They happened in a special and particular way that is recorded for us in Scripture here in this generation. But the fact is that they happen in every generation. They happen as a part of and as a foreshadowing of His completed glory and His visible arrival. You see, He is about the work, even just a few days after this, of dismantling the powers that be in this world, the kingdoms of this world and the spirit of this age, and replacing it with his own reign. Why? If this were the last night of the world as we know it, why in the world would Luther plant a tree? Why in the world would Bruce Coburn drink champagne? Why in the world would Jeremiah buy land? Well, because, brothers and sisters, please hear me. The end of the world as we know it, the end of our life as we know it, the end of whatever it is that weighs us down as we know it, is the beginning of the world as God intends it in Christ. It is the beginning of his kingdom on earth. It is the beginning of his will being done in our world and in our lives as it is in heaven. That's why we plant a tree. Because his steadfast love endures forever, yesterday, today, and forever. That's why we drink champagne. Because the king has come. That's why we buy property. Because it will be valuable in the coming order. This is how he turns our laments of mourning into dancing. By dismantling in us and all around us that which resists his reign and establishing the reign of his peace. Whether it is the apocalypse or circumstances at work, or in our finances, in our, in our parenting, in our marriages that, we, that feel apocalyptic. The principles for, for surviving are the same. Learn to remember who He is. To recognize who He is. What He has said He has begun And what he has said, he will bring to perfect completion. Remember the stories of his steadfast love. The outcome will likely mean the end of the world as you know it, but it will be the certain arrival of a world you cannot imagine, or perhaps you can only imagine. 
In an article entitled, Why Panic is the Devil's Friend, Lee B. Bao concludes her article this way. Our life is a pilgrimage through a foreign land plagued with suffering, war, and pain. Even though life here will break our hearts over and over again, it doesn't get the last word, and it won't last forever. God's story gives us the longing of our hearts, redemption, and hope we can cling to. You see, the devil loves to use the terrible things that happen in this world to lead us away from God in fear and in panic. Times of crisis and disaster, though, are opportunities to remember, to remind one another, to proclaim, and in fact to demonstrate the reality of what we believe. Christ died, Christ rose, Christ reigns, and Christ will come again. After all, all these things may pass away, but Christ's words will not pass away until they are done perfectly and completely. So, Father, we pray that you would grant to